Today's guest needs little introduction. He is a former professional cyclist, co-founder of legendary training platform Training Peaks, and the son of the author of several endurance training Bibles, Joe Friel. That's right, Dirk Friel joins us today on the Athlinks podcast. We had a great chat about training slower to get faster, the importance of recovery days, and he will school you on the importance of the 80-20 rule. We reminisce about his youth spent as an American in Europe as a pro cyclist and how he and fellow racer and previous guest of this podcast, Anton Viatoro, were bamboozled by Guatemalan race officials who deliberately directed them into a wrong turn, costing the Americans the race. Dirk is a great guy, fantastic coach and entrepreneur, and I think you will love hearing what he has to say about the world of training, racing, and living an active life. So if you're ready for the show, crank it up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I am your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from the once again snowy hills of Broomfield, Colorado. It is Wednesday, March 10th, 2021, and this is episode 36. What's happening, Dirk? Funky music. I like it. Super funky. Going back in time. Nice. Yeah, I think my preference would be some Ukrainian death metal, but I don't think it would go over well with the crowd, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> it's a good way to just kind of like dance it. into the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So like today it. on the podcast, we have Dirk Friel, the Dirk Friel, in fact. Um, man, you're like you, you've got one of those kind of uh, legendary resumes. So we'll, we'll start at the top. Um, you are a former pro cyclist. You are co founder of the legendary Training Peaks. You are son of Joe Friel, who got me through my first several triathlons through his Triathletes Training Bible book. Yeah. Um, and we can probably talk for the next, and we will talk for the next hour <laughs> and a half or so about just anything else that uh, that makes up the man that is Dirk Friel. So welcome yeah. to the podcast. Super. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, indeed. I think the last time I saw, well, I know the last time I saw you was at um, your co-founder's birthday party, Gear Fishers, what, about a year and a half ago, I guess, kind of pre-COVID, late fall, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 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 Was that for Collins? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think it was Gear's 60th birthday. If <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> He's not quite that old. No, we'll, we're just giving giving you grief out there. I'm actually talking to Gear later today. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's good to see you again. I wish it were in person, but you know, all the stresses of business and life and COVID and all that stuff. We're we're in the same town, but here we are meeting remotely. So. Good to have you. Yeah, you know, I tend to meet people kind of on the trails now, you know, yeah. in passing. So you might do a couple of miles with somebody running or, or cycling or something, which is a great way to bump into people. Um, you know, if you don't have that activity, uh, you're a little more isolated, I, I think. Yeah, so, for sure. Uh, yeah, doing the best we can and hopefully gets better here in the next couple months. Yeah. Well, you sparked my interest because you had posted, uh, I think about two weeks ago on your Instagram, you posted your kind of final pre-race training log, um, uh, some graphs and things because you were heading out to do the Power of Four race in Aspen, which is, um, is it Schemo? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Ski Mountaineering and okay. kind of people shorten it and say Schemo. Okay. That's, the, that's what the cool kids say. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the Europeans got it, you know, use. So describe what is ski mountaineering in general? It's kind of funny. It's, it's really, you know, the original winter sport. I mean, mm. the mailman did ski mountaineering, okay. you know, even in Colorado, you know, to get mail up and over some of the passes, you know, the mailman strapped on skis and put skins on the bottom and skinned up and skied down to deliver mail. Um, obviously it's really kind of 
kind of born out of military games. Um, the biggest races in the world are actually have military roots. Mm. And, you know, Switzerland versus Italy versus Germany versus France, you know, they would have these military games where the, the troops would actually race each other. And it was a big, you know, uh, big event to, to bring home the trophy back to your country. Mm. Um, and we had the 10th Mountain Division here in Colorado. Yeah. You know, we had the Army training on skis and they had skins. Literally, you'd strap these skins on the bottom of your skis to give you traction to go uphill and down. And guns on their back and 50 pound packs and all that. So wow. there's, there's a lot of roots in the sport of ski mountaineering. It's now really, um, picked up, become, you know, very popular in Europe, you know, thousands of people on the start line in the mm. big races in Europe, you know, pre COVID I'd say in the last five years is when it's really started to see tremendous growth in the United States. Mm. Um, it's still obviously niche, small, you have to explain the sport. Um, Probably the two most well-known races in the United States are here in Colorado. We have the the Grand Traverse, which is in okay. two weeks from now, yeah. where you ski from Crested Butte to Aspen, point to point. Um, and then the one that I love doing is the Power of Four, which just wrapped up last weekend. And I, I love that, you know, the Power of Four, it's world-class skiing. You start in Snowmass, Colorado. You, you skin to the top, summit. You go out a backcountry gate, so it's some very difficult skiing as well. And you connect over to the backside of Buttermilk, and you skin up the backside of Buttermilk out of bounds. You come back in the backcountry gate, and you ski down to the base of Buttermilk. And then there's a bike path that you have to run, mm. and you have your skis on your pack. And you know this gear um, is just super light, really small skis. It's more about running uphill. Okay, um, the boots are full carbon, you know, full range of motion. Um, so it's easier to run in these boots than a mm. typical boot, but still kind of difficult because the yeah. solid sole. So you run up the bike path to the base of Aspen Highlands, and then you skin up to the bot to the top of the bowl. You actually have to boot pack the Aspen Highlands bowl, which lots of people do. Um, ski the bowl, skin out, um, and then you're at the bottom of what's called Midnight Mine Road. You're backcountry going uphill up this um snow-covered road and you enter the top of aspen mountain and you ski to the bottom down where the uh, gondola is and damn the european furs crowd you know yeah. <laughs> champagne bottles and all that um so it's a great atmosphere it's a 6 a.m start so there's people on the chairlift starting at nine okay cheering you on so it's a great great atmosphere you know, this was the largest event they've ever had. They didn't restrict entrance this year. Mm. Um, we can go into other, you know, restrictions, but we had over 400 people wow. on the, you know, do the race. So it was great. It was great to, uh, That's to awesome. finally get it in. So it's like, it's 12,000 feet of vertical gain, 25 miles. Yeah, it's 11,000 feet, 26 okay. miles, effectively four climbs. And, um, it's a, but yet it's a team race, yeah. you know, you, you must start finish with a teammate, you enter and exit the transitions with your teammate. Um, so you're only as strong as your weakest link. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, and it, for me, you know, um, a fast year is around six and a half hours. Okay. So it's, it, you know, it's certainly time-wise shorter than an Ironman. Mm -hmm. Um, but it has that Ironman sense to it where it's the, the pacing and the nutrition. Yeah. 
our utmost importance. So dialing in the nutrition plan, this was a hot year for, for ski racing, you know, mm. 52 degrees in town is oh, wow. a very hot uphill ski race. Yeah. So yeah, definitely had to stay on top of it. So yeah, it's still it's kind of like, you know, doing Ironman, just, yeah. you know, e- eating transitions and nutrition. Some, yeah. Eating competition with some skiing thrown in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of like that. Um, so when you're on these things, like I've never, uh, I've never, I'm not a skier. I know I moved to Colorado and I have virtually no interest <laughs> for whatever reason to ski. Arizona guy, Arizona guy. Arizona guy through and through. Yeah. Born in Miami even so, even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, but the skins and the boots and the skis. So do this, do you, when you, when you have the skis on your feet, are you always with skins on? Cause they kind of cover the skis, right? Yeah, the skin is, uh, it's like a nylon mohair combination. Okay. They're sticky on one side, and then obviously the kind of short hair on the other side gives you the, the grip going one way uphill. Yeah. Um, so when you're going uphill with the skis on, you have a free heel. Kind of looks like telemark, you know, kind of looks like cross-country skiing okay. going uphill. Um, you're only, you know, you have a pivot point at the toe, and your heel is free, and your your boot is actually unlocked and has a full range of motion okay. to it, so you get a really good. Um, you try and get a glide even going uphill. If you can get two inches of glide, that adds up. Yeah. You know? Our longest climb of the day is just under two hours. Wow. Which is Aspen Highlands. So okay. You're you're going uphill for two hours. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'm an endurance addicted athlete, so it's. Yeah. It's the same thing as doing a trail race, you yeah. know, running uphill. It's just that I hate running downhill. Yeah. <laughs> I love bombing down mm. downhill on skis, just like mountain biking, bombing yeah. downhill. Um, so it's just the same kind of sense and energy to it right. that I get from mountain biking. Is it kind um, of like in the winter? Is it kind of like swimming in 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 the sense that it's um like your your technique in in trail running it will certainly help you on the downhills, but there isn't a ton of technique other than to avoid fatigue, maybe on the uphills is, and it feels like the cross country and Nordic and that style of skiing, it's kind of like swimming in that. Like if you don't get the technique down, you don't get that glide down. You're kind of screwed. Is it similar to that? Or am I overblowing the technique side? That's absolutely true in pure Nordic. So in classic cross country skiing or skate skiing, I always relate that to to swimming. Mm, you know, okay. you can be as fit as you want and just flail. <laughs> mm. Um, but it, it's lesser in ski mountaineering. It's really more of a natural kind of feel. Okay. There there is technique which you gain over time just doing miles and miles of uphill. You you start to gain that glide a bit more. But you, anyone can start. It's sort in a way like it's like snowshoeing. There mm. there's a very short learning curve to it. Um, I'd say most people, however, when they do start, um, they waste a lot of energy because they're picking the ski up off the snow when they're going uphill yeah. and you really want to kind of glide it on the snow Yeah, and that will save 20% energy right there without, yeah. if you just don't pick the ski up. Um, you know, and I probably lose the most amount of time on the downhill. You know, mm. I, I, it's amazing how fast the top skiers are, how they can just be fearless and bomb it. And yeah. I'm, you know, I'm 50 now and I, I do get scared about breaking <laughs> legs and stuff. Um, so that's in the back of my mind. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely kind of put the brakes on sometimes, but yeah. the top, 
top ladies and, and guys are just gonzo. It's crazy yeah. to watch. And it's ugly because they're horrible downhill skis. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. I hear you loud and clear. My wife and I were talking last night because we're going to do a little spring break trip up to, I think, probably Breck, if not Vail. And she and she skied as a kid and stuff. What we were talking about, I've got Silver Rush coming up this summer, the run, 50-mile run. And so she's like, wow, do you want to ski? And my first inclination, and I don't normally shy away from these things, but I was like, mm, eh, 50, you know, I'm 49, I'm turning 50. And it was like, last thing I need is a knee injury because I don't know what I'm doing. And then it takes me out of this yeah. race. So I couldn't anything, believe those words know, left my mouth, but. <laughs> if anything, try cross country and just classic. I think that's what we're going to do. You know, at the, yeah. on the golf course in, in Breck. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, what I also love about, it's, you know, it's, this has kind of been a new sport for me, you know, starting seven years ago, still learning, but the, the lessons learned from other endurance sports are very applicable. And, you know, that polarization, the zone two, the aerobic threshold, not doing too much intensity. I mean, it is a six and a half hour race yeah. for me. So, you know, it's, um, that discipline of training at the high zone two has really, really paid off that's the majority of my training um and in the race you know my threshold is about 168 now mm, okay. 50 but i'm i'm averaging 152 in the race you know for six and a half hours wow. okay 152 so it's a very high i've been you know working on maintaining you know getting that aerobic zone two higher percentage of my of my threshold much like an ironman athlete would or, or trail runner yeah um that's the whole point um is really to kind of like save those matches for the end right yeah really so yeah that's the majority of the training has been kind of zone two and that's what i posted that was i think that was my last long day it was a five yep. hour day ten thousand vertical feet yeah and on the uphills trying to stay in that you know that day trying to stay right below 150 yeah for me yeah it's amazing how well that works i haven't been disciplined i had a coach years ago and and he um, I think it was really kind of like in the beginning of that run slow to go faster kind of mentality for a while. Right. And yeah. um, boy, it was amazing, you know, because you feel stupid, like you get to the bottom of a hill and you end up walking up the hill and, you know, you're like, how is this making me faster? But you're just dialed into that heart yeah. rate. And one day I was running a 10 miler and I was like maintaining whatever the pace was, like a 630 pace. and like, holy like for me, that was like just, I was flying, but I didn't feel like I was really pushing that hard. So it, it definitely works for sure. Yeah. No, what, you know, it's, it's the whole concept of building the foundation, yeah. you know, why ignore the foundation and just go for the curtains, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you really, if, if you can build up that, that solid base, that aerobic zone two time, it, it's amazing the you'll amaze yourself at the, the pace you can maintain for hours on end, you know, and that, you know, I saw it firsthand when I coached, you know, world tour cyclists, their, their zone two warm up. you know, they can do four or five hours at what's above at the time, my actual threshold, right. Pace. You know, <laughs> wow. their coffee shop ride per se was, you know, my time trial pace. Wow. Um, just amazing to see what, you know, what they have to do for a tour de France type, yeah. Um, event and they do thousands of hours at that, at that pace. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to be disciplined enough. Um, you know, you're not going out and 
stopping at coffee shops and you're 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 maintaining the pace and or the heart rate and if you go above that you know very much um you all of a sudden are in a different zone different energy pathway yeah and that's not the intent so it's it it can be very tough to to be disciplined um to maintain that type of training so when you're training for this style of race, um, I, I would assume you apply all the same disciplines as you did, you know, when you were doing Ironmans and things and in terms of periodization and all that stuff. But the where you're really focused on staying in that zone two and training, are you doing much, if any, speed work or are pretty much all of your workouts pretty consistently just in that zone two long kind of slow days or or what does it look like generally speaking the majority of the time certainly is that zone two but i definitely see benefits in adding all 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 intensity levels you know within the training it's just that it's not the majority of the training um you know i do um this year it was canceled but typically the last six years i do a wednesday night you know, training race, um, at Eldora, which is just, you know, up from Boulder. Yeah. Usually there's about four or five of those, um, on Wednesday nights. And those, those take me about 75 minutes. So okay. that's an absolute anaerobic all out lactate, you know, yeah. through your nose type, type effort. Um, and that, I think that does help with the economy, you know, getting that speed work in that, you know, zone five intensity can really translate into some improved economy and, you know, economy of movement. Um, there are times certainly in the races where, you know, you are trying to catch somebody. So it's, you know, you, it's, I think there's benefit in hitting all intensity zones every single month of the year, okay. no matter when your race might be. It's just the amount of time that you spend in, in, in those, those zones. Got it. And do you, how much has that, has your philosophy on that changed? Like, let's say over the last 20 years, is it ever evolving? Do you find things that you were teaching 20 years ago, 80% still applicable? Have you thrown out everything? Have you maintained everything? Like how much have, has, have things changed in that regard over the last 20 so or 20 or so years? Yeah, for me, the biggest change is actually have having all intensity zones every month of the year. Mm. But that's not saying every month of the year is crazy hard. Right. I think in the past we were very, you know, we really kind of like, it was taboo to go, you know, November just, you know, as a cyclist starting racing in, in March, you know, December, January, you know, was very, you know, much slower. Um, really didn't do a whole lot of intensity. Um, and so I think that's been the biggest change. I, I feel you can maintain a um, higher percentage of your, of your fitness, you know, year round. It, 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 there's a rhythm to it and a change um, and a pattern to it. But yet I do see the capability of maintaining um, intensity, you know, all intensity levels all year round um, ha- has been of, of benefit. Um, and now in, in pro cycling, you know, the season's gotten so long. Um, by the end of my career, we were starting in Malaysia. You know, we did Tour Langkawi in February. Mm. And we were racing, you know, I was racing in South America with Anton Viataro, yeah. who we had on a couple episodes ago. You know, Guatemala is in October. Um, I posted a result from Athlinks yesterday 
which was Paris Brussels Classic, which I which was I think a September or October you know, race. So we raced February through October. Um, um, but you know there are time periods where you need to sit back, kick back, kind of recharge the batteries. So it's not full intense all year round. But yeah. I have seen that change. How much of that is due to just the 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 mountain of data that we have access to now that um, one, the data that we have access to now through different devices and then just the analytical analytical tools that we can throw at that and really discern, you know, causation versus correlation and, and everything else. Yeah. You see more case studies of, you know, how athletes are training. There's more broad scoped um, studies out there that are, digging into that data and showing it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a change because of the amount of data that's out there and showing how the, the training patterns of, you know, top athletes. Um, so, you know, a, you know, what a top athlete does, however, doesn't always translate to, right. to the age grouper, but a lot of the lessons can be picked up and learned. Um, you know, you know, the kind of the, the big buzz now is certainly that 80, 20, polarized um training which is you know theorized theorized as as 80 20 so 80 percent of sessions are at a lower intensity 20 percent of sessions not time okay are at a at the high percent or at the you know threshold or above um so you know that's really even for you know sprint type athletes it's shown you know cyclocross races 45 minutes you still need that capability to recover between the you know the hard efforts the more aerobically fit you are the better you can recover or you don't have to you know burn as many matches you're saving them for the end even in a 45 minute cyclocross race there's a lot of benefit to you know that that aerobic threshold intensity and and building up your your engine and you know it's kind of more like your diesel engine and then you have the high octane nitric acid whatever <laughs> yeah. you know a <laughs> uh, funny car burning you know stuff you know at the top right um so building that it, it, that uh diesel engine can go a long ways yeah um so that's interesting the session versus the time so so to keep the math straight let's say over two weeks you do 10 sessions just to keep the 80 20 alive so Let's say your long day is is five hours, and an interval day is um, let's say forty five minutes or something like that. So it's just that you've got basically eight slow days, even though the time that you're spending at that lower threshold is, you know, way outsized, obviously. Right. But then you've just yeah. got those two session, two speed sessions over the course of the two weeks. Right, and this is all really coming from Dr. Steven Seiler out of Norway and his studies. Um, really kind of looking at, you know, he did a lot, um, you know, with Nordic skiers, they do long events, they do short events, but it really kind of trended towards 80, 20. Mm. So true. It's not the time that's 80, 20, it's the session count. Got it. Have you, have you found like where, you know, in, in some of the athletes that you've trained over the years where the data is just not matching, like you're like the data says one thing should be true, but the body's not responding or the body's not feeling it. And you just haven't been able to crack that code, you know, or is it pretty consistent? Yeah, I had a great, um, Ryan Bolton, who's a Olympic triathlete, my 
father coached him and he's now a coach and works for USA triathlon. Uh, I had a great webinar with him, um, a few months ago. And the topic was subjective versus objective mm. data and how to make the sense of the two. Oftentimes that subjective data needs to override the objective data, if you will. Got it. Um, so not feeling it today, just the stress, the, you know, whatever that, um, can override what, what's planned or in the middle of the session, it's, it's just not happening. Um, even though the, you know, we have the performance management chart in training peaks and it might say you're very fresh, but it's not the Holy grail. It's, it's another kind of, you know, tool and tool bag. Um, but it's, it, you know, the performance management chart gives you a lot of, um, kind of a visual of the last six weeks worth of training, the last 42 days is what it's looking at. And it's giving you a sense of the training load and the fitness fatigue and form, but they're not always hundred percent on, right? Yeah. Correct. And every, you have to train the individual. You're not training to a chart. You right. need to take that chart data, try and see what it might be telling you, apply it to that individual. The same data might be different for a different individual, right. the same numbers, right? So um, you have to see how the numbers really correlate with the real world data. And that's why I always say, you know, once you have a year's worth of data, that data becomes infinitely more valuable because now you can start to compare year over year. Um, you know, what worked in the past? What do I want to stay away from? When did I get sick? When was I crushing it? Right. Well, what were the numbers leading into that? You know, what was that objective data leading into that? Can we try and reproduce that? You know, unless the subjective data starts to come back, that that's not working this year for whatever reason. So yeah, the, the numbers don't always right. predict the future does training peaks adapt to that type of thing year over year for this for one athlete where you start to adjust those numbers or is it really on the coach to kind of look at that and say hey we we encountered this last year also around this time and you know maybe it's an emotional thing maybe it's family stress because of the holidays or whatever but something else is just not quite dialed into you're not feeling the way the data says you should be feeling yeah right now that's that's certainly been on the on the coach to interpret the data. Um, we certainly give insights into, you know, with our reports and, and graphs, et cetera. But I think that's certainly the future of where we can take things is to help make the coach and athlete uh, more informed, maybe yeah. gives, give them a little more heads up insights into, you know, what, what's happening. So certainly, you know, we're working on some of that machine learning type um, technology right now. Um, We've released an app called uh, Run with Hal, yeah. which was with Hal Higdon. And that's our first foray into this uh, new kind of adaptive technology where it can see if you did today's workout or not, um, and then adapt. It, it takes into account your lifestyle. So if you all of a sudden can't train for three days next week, it'll you know rejigger all the workouts. Mm. The next phase of that is it'll start to really look at the quality of the workout and your recovery signs. Um, to make um, decisions going forward. And that's really, you know, working in part with the coach. There is no training peaks methodology. You know, we want to empower the coaches to, to spread their methodology and their beliefs. So 
the, you know, these apps and new services we're working with, um, you know, with, 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 um, it's always in partnership with the coach yeah. so they can, um, really provide more services to more athletes. What are those recovery metrics that you're looking at? Is it, is it mainly like resting heart rate and things like that? Or, or, um, we have it all. So okay. it really is up to the coach. You know, we have everything from HRV, you know, we're compatible with whoop. So there could be sleep quality, sleep hours, you know, in the performance management chart, we have the training stress balance. So typically if you're in a positive state with TSB, that means, you know, you're in a low training load yeah. um, phase, but then day to day, you know, the co- the athlete can in- input 20 or plus more different metrics that might relate to recovery mood. Yeah. You know, menstruation, um, all kinds of metrics. So it really, it kind of leave it up to the coach to decide, um, with the athlete, what are the most important metrics that they want to track? Yeah. I'm somewhat fascinated. I was talking to one of your coaches, um, on an earlier version of the podcast and the one of the things that we got into was how those rest metrics start to affect you in in both directions. Like on the day where you you feel great, but the data is kind of telling you, hey, just hold back. And the times where they didn't listen to that and then got sick or what, you know, just like got extremely yeah. fatigued after that, or vice versa, where maybe you wake up and you're like, I'm just not feeling it sitting in my living room, but the data is showing you you should be good to go. And then you go out and you do that workout. And all of a sudden you flew through this thing that, you know, maybe you would have taken a rest day that, that day instead of just listening to the data. So it's an interesting yeah. thing to balance the body versus the data. And the mind, I mean, yeah. I just went through a peak phase and the hardest part was that last like nine days knowing how I felt really good and just having to comp- almost every day tell myself it's better to show up undertrained and overcooked. And mm. I've done that before where I have an important race on the weekend and I'm just going to, I'm going to go do that Wednesday night, you know, training race. And then I still felt the effects of it or I got sick from it, mm. you know, and I just looking back, like I should not have done that Wednesday workout Interesting. You know, before the Saturday race. There's only, I'm 50, you know, 50 years old now, only two days recovery in between, you know, not always enough, you know, yeah. and with me now, you know, it's, it's tends to be more about, you know, little aches, you know, my lower back is really bugging me. So I can't have a perfect form and some kind of managing my, my back pain or whatever kind of little pain it might be, you know, so I'd, I'd rather add in more easy days. Yeah. Um, and really when I'm going to go hard, I'm hundred percent sure this is the day to go hard. And I'm really going to take advantage of it. Got it. And I'm confident that I have time afterwards or however many days I think I might need to recover from that. And, I, and now, you know, when I was younger, if I had a day off from, like, I never took a day completely off. Now I'm like, okay, that wow. was a recovery day. You yeah. know, I, that was a, you know, a lengthy work day. It's 7 p.m. now you know, I'm not going to cram in something, you know, it's better just to kick back and make it a rest day. Um, so I'm not as hard on myself in terms of actually having, you know, days off. Mm. That's interesting. That dinner party philosophy of like, you can never have too much. 
versus showing up a little bit undercooked versus overcooked on, on a, on a yeah. race day. That's, I wonder if that's a, um, it almost feels like, like an, a very American type of sensibility where you just, you just push, 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 you know, always more, always more, always more. Uh, yeah, I think it's just an athletic yeah, mentality of sure. wanting to be the best and always pushing for more. I, you know, I can say like in this power four last weekend, I, I feel I really did kind of want, you know, the stars lined up for me at a great day personally. And I was able to actually attack the race. You know, I'm not yeah. going fast, but the final 90 minute climb, you know, I was probably five minutes faster than my fastest time ever. And that's starting at the five hour mark. Right. That is like, that's really when the race begins is five hours into the race. Wow. And what, what can I do on that final climb? Yeah. And if I'm a little too cooked going into the race, it means I'm going to go 20 minutes slower right. on the final climb. So the whole race you're saying, you know, the race hasn't started yet. The race hasn't started yet. You finally, you get five hours into it. And it's like, okay, now the race is on. Yeah. How do I feel? And I've, and you know, for me, the finish line is the top of that final climb. You know, I can go downhill no matter how horrible I feel. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was, t- I took in 200 milligrams of caffeine, you know, at like uh, four hours and 45 minutes into the race. Um, even though I had two and a half more hours to go, it was really yeah. lining things up for that climb and getting in the right frame of mind. And I just know how horrible I've felt on that, on that um, part of the race in the past. Another you know, great thing that worked for me this year was, was nutrition. And I, I didn't even think about my stomach. You know, in mm. the past, I've had that horrible you know, nausea, you know, Ironman nausea feel. I've had that probably half of my races. And I really worked on that this year in training. So I, hopefully that translated to race day. But you know, I just didn't have that, was it that the, horrible stomach. Was it the way you were ingesting or, or did you switch products? A little bit of both? Yeah, I, I really, I know the number one thing is the amount I get in every hour. Mm-hmm. The first, you know, four hours is, is key. So I've been training to do at least 75 grams of carbs an hour. So I've been doing 75 to 90 an, an hour in you know, on my, in my training sessions, not yeah. every day, you know, a shorter intense day, I certainly don't need to do that. But what, if I'm doing three, if I'm really doing three or more hours, that's like, okay, part of today's training is nutrition. So I really kind of dial that in, um, it, you know, and so I'm, I'm trying every 30 minutes to take in a gel and the rest of it is, you know, via liquid. So yeah, that, and that worked out really well. I think the, after the four hour mark, I, I started bringing in more pretzels. It was a hot day. So I had the pretzels and the salt. Yeah. And that was a really nice, uh, um, you know, change. I had, um, they must've been like fried by the gods. The, there were these Lay's potato chips, um, mm. at the bottom of mosquito pass coming off of the Leadville heavy half a few years ago. I've never had a more delicious handful of potato chips yeah. And it, it was so funny because you spend all your time with the, you know, great gels and all this, you know, science and nutrition and all this other stuff. And I came off Mosquito Pass, which is just like a, I mean, it's like a taking an elevator to heaven and then coming back down off it. 
And oh my God, just that salty handful of Lay's potato chips was like yeah. exactly what the doctor ordered. Yeah, exactly. Magical. Yeah. And you know, with COVID restrictions, they, they told us ahead of time, they would not have mm-hmm. kind of a grab and go um, yeah. options. In the past, they've actually had the pretzels there. So this year I, I knew that. So I, I packed, you know, the pretzels with me. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to have these at hour four. Um, so mad. So, yeah. That, <laughs> and I never eat pretzels, you know, but yeah. I love them in the race. It's amazing that feeling that where you were talking about where you match your peak with the race. And it's almost mm. like at the end of The Matrix where Neo sort of figures it out and he's just like, you know, blocking punches, one hand behind his back. And I, years ago, like my first full season of triathlon where when I actually worked with a coach that's exactly how it was where in that race i was like i was locking elbows with a guy in the open water swim i dropped the hammer for 10 strokes and distanced myself recovered in five seconds like just felt amazing same thing on the bike i was passing people same on the it was just like it was just insane how good it was it was like you you, there were no there was no effort into what you were doing and Yeah. yeah you were hitting it yeah it's it's crazy you learn a lot you know you got to go through several seasons you know to maybe get to that point yeah there's so much so many nuances that can take you way off track you know it's funny in the past i've i've kind of felt like i was ready to do the race the week after the race yeah like you get through the race and that was like the best training of all and (laughs) isn't it horrible when uh, the week after the race, you are just flying. Yeah. Like I have so much power I feel right now. Um, and so I'm trying to like, you know, shift that yeah. to before the race. And so I've now got kind of this routine in where, you know, that Sunday, it's a Saturday race, but the Sunday before I'm doing my, you know, my five hour big workout. It's kind of race simulation. Um, luckily I met another coach, um, towards the end for the last 90 minutes. So he kind of kept me honest on my pace and Mm. he was on the front. So I had to like keep up with him and concentrate, concentrate just like in a race. And I think that was a great, great, you know, a great race doesn't come down to one workout. It's really about the consistency over time. Um, but that kind of final phase is really kind of key for me. So I try, I, I, I learn every year and then I try and replicate that, you know, for the next year, if yeah. it, you know, obviously if it, if it goes well. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that. Cause every time I'd gone up and raced or done big, um, well, I guess raced up in Leadville, it's always that next week where, um, I would, we used to ride our bikes to and from work every day. Me and another guy that I worked with, Mike Melly, who lived in my neighborhood and he, he just destroys me on the bike. But the week, like the two weeks after Leadville, every time he's just like, dude, what did you eat today? I just had this new <laughs> level of power and punchiness yeah. that it was like, man, I should have. Yeah. Exactly what you're saying. Like if you can, if you can kind of do some of those efforts before the race, maybe that's there on race day. Well, the other thing that you brought up was your friend and training with a friend and you're always comparing yourself against your training buddies. Yeah. And, you know, the power four is a, is a team event. You race with another person. You have to come in, you know, enter exit transitions together, finish together, all that. Um, but my, my training partner lives at 10,000 feet in Breckenridge. Mm-hmm. Um, he trains there every day. So when I 
go up and train with him, he's a gear faster. He's always kind of pushing me into the uncomfortable zone, which, so I have to be aware of that. So I actually try not to train with him that much, you know, because I'll get overcooked, especially on day one at altitude. I might ease into it. and, um, And so you might be able to finish with a person in a race but you train completely different. Yeah. So don't think that your competitor trains like that, so I need to train like that. Right. Or my my training buddy, you know, you can, yeah. even though you maybe are, quote, slower in training, doesn't mean you can't beat or be with that faster person. That's a great point. Because race day is a different kind of animal. It's, it's, it's not training. Yeah. Do you do you coach yourself or do you find that you need to get some I've, somebody else? When I got in the sport, I had um uphill athlete and Scott Johnston um as my coach, and that helped a lot, kind of lay the foundation, learning a new sport. Um, really kind of took it, you know, very serious and and hit the workouts. Then I got into a phase where I was like, you know, I with work, et cetera, I, I love the sport, but man, I just I was getting like anxiety, mm. you know, and I want to do this. I want to do this race, um, but I don't need all this anxiety. So I kind of kicked back a bit, didn't have the coach, but I have the foundation there. Um, but then I find that I need that accountability. Yeah. You know, coaches, that, that that's one of the biggest things they can provide is that accountability and feedback. So, you know, I have um, lacked that, but I kind of gained it a bit from my teammate, you know, you're going to go 20% harder and hit your workouts if you're, if you're doing a team event. Um, so certainly having a coach to, to get me into the sport and learn a lot of the, a lot of the training. Um, I guess the principles you know, relate a lot to my background in cycling, but yet yeah. the uniqueness of the sport and intervals, um, technique, et cetera, really helped me out a ton. It's good to know that even... Even uh, even the great coaches out there can use a hand. I it's something that I've been kind of uh, uh, talking about for a long time, and and I, I mean it's so clear to me that I was performing better when I had a coach for for a thousand reasons. A big part of it was I just didn't know what I was doing. I came from worlds not endurance, and so it was training for wrestling is very different than training for you know a trail race or whatever. So I just needed to right. learn all that. But the thing that I do miss is that structured you know like i far too often i show up at the gym or show up at the trail with not really a plan in mind it's sort of like you know what do i feel like oh i feel pretty good i'll do an interval day today that's not the way that's not the right way to approach it you know yeah and there's you know five different types of workouts you could do every single day which one should you do um you do it and then you question yourself you're questioning yourself during it um, you're always as an athlete kind of questioning if you're making the right decision or, you know, you have, you have questions every single day about all kinds of different nuances of the, of the sport and the yeah. training and the equipment and gear, et cetera. So, you know, I can't talk to my wife about that stuff. She, you know, she doesn't, you know, so it's, it's super, yeah. um, great to have that, that other party that you can rely upon and and really kind of get that trust with and it's just such a great cool relationship yeah when you have that coach you know coach working with you for sure 
Well, how does that work in in cycling? And because I want to dig in a little bit into your cycling background, but when you, mm. I mean, there's so many dynamics there in terms of, you know, you have a director who's more, I think, kind of race strategy, if I'm not mistaken. Then you have coach, and then you have, you know, the team itself and the dynamics and the financial structures and all that stuff. Do you have freedom in that to like if you're not gelling with a coach and you're not maybe you don't buy into the coach's philosophy it's not working for you again like we talked about before like your data's not matching your the way your body's feeling do you have latitude in that or are you just kind of stuck in hell for a while Yeah it's you know it's evolved a lot since I turned professional in 1992 and there's been a lot of change Jeez you're old Yeah <laughs> A lot of change. Uh, you know, I moved to Belgium when I was 19, got a one-way ticket in 1990 to Belgium. And, you know, really up until about the year 2007, things were stuck in time. It was, you were on your own. The team really did not care what you did at home. Mm. You know, it was all about your last result. And it was just a horrible um, culture, you know, to be an athlete within. Um, you're only as good as your last result, you know, and what are you going to do today? <laughs> you know, wow. and you go home and, and, and you were on your own. Uh, and then, you know, starting around 2007 and it was really kind of T mobile, um, which started to change things and high, uh, high gear, high, high road. Um, you know, that's when we were brought in, uh, my first pro team training camp, Mallorca in December was December 2006, I believe. And Mark Cavendish was actually a first year pro. He was mm. just beginning as a pro that year and he's still racing great today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, starting around that time is when teams started to actually hire coaches. In the past, they had doctors. Wow. And that no was kidding. Not, <laughs> you know, the doctors really uh, were not there for the training. It was more about the medication, you yeah. know. And, and then, the, the culture started to change and you were accountable to the team even when you went home and the team was accountable to you to provide advice and you obviously try and stay off the drugs and do smart training and let, you know, do this right. Yeah. Not every team obviously did that, but that is when it, the culture started to change um, from, from my experience. So, and even now today, it kind of is, every team is responsible for, you know, for, for training uh, oversight, but sometimes the teams will say, okay, you can have a personal coach outside the team. The best teams that allow that outside personal coach have a line of communication with that coach. So yes, your coach is not employed by the team, but um, we're all on the same page in terms of where your goals lie, what, what we um, are preparing you for, you know, as an athlete. Um, but a lot of the teams have the, you know, every team has a performance staff now. Every team has coaches on staff. Um, so that's been a big, big change. Absolutely. So you were just on your own before like 2007 to just, you could or couldn't hire a coach, you could or couldn't get better. And it just all mattered. Like if you were performing great. Yeah. Not, even after then, 2007, yeah. many teams just le left it up to the athlete. Wow. Um, that's crazy. But now that's absolutely not the case now. So I'd say in the last decade, it's gone 180 yeah. complete change. Yeah. Um, and you know, athletes are making more money now. Um, so 
you know, now there's more investment in the athlete, you know, 365. And that wasn't always the case, yeah. you know, in the, in the, in the old traditional, you know, culture of cycling, it was, the athlete was left up on, on their own when they went home. Wow. But th- luckily that's changed, you know, and that's been great for training peaks, you know, so many teams that we work with, um, they rely on it to, to have that communication and the management of the data between, um, yeah. it's not just coach and athlete, but you have nutritionist strength coach, maybe a sort sports psychologist. You have the team directors, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, a, you know, you can have a team, um, oversight over, you know, a single athlete it might be five different, um, experts overseeing their, their training program. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I asked Anton and Gear both to give me some uh, to give me some nuggets, some questions to ask you. And they both one of the things that they both came came back with is your sort of as an American, your unorthodox path to professional cycling in Europe. You sort of and you just yeah. I think alluded to it with kind of a one way ticket to to um, to Belgium. Uh, wh- what was that path like? It sounds like you sort of like packed up one day and just said, "I'm going to go figure this out on my own." Or, or how did that work out for you? Yeah. Yeah, you pretty much had to. Uh, you know, I I did live at the Olympic Training Center off and on as a junior. I was picked for. You know, I, I would make certain selections to to camps of you know down to twenty junior athletes. So you might say, okay, I was top twenty, if you will, American juniors, but I never picked for a, a world's. Mm. It was all all about trying to get to the world championships. So certainly never made it to the world championships as a junior. Um, luckily in Colorado, we have an amazing, we had a great race calendar. You know, we had Davis Finney on down, you know, racing here. And so I could, even as a a junior, I was a category one racer, which allowed me to race with the pros. So as a 17 year old, I was racing with professionals and then a local pro team, I was actually the only junior on, on the pro team. Mm. Um, AC Pinarello, um, was, was a pretty good, you know, pro team here in the States. And I was able to travel with the pros as a junior and learn a lot. And in Northern Colorado, we had wind and great athletes. And I got to learn how to really fight it out, duke it mm. out in echelons, you know, in the gutter, in the winds, you know, North of Fort Collins up to Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Wyoming and back. And, we would have hundred mile death marches every single Sunday. Yeah. Um, so it really kind of hardened me up and toughened yeah. me up. And I love that style of racing. And I just fell in love with this concept of moving to Belgium. And whenever, you know, the Vela news came out, I read every article in it and winning magazine. And if it was ever on TV, Perry Roubaix, you know, I recorded every single second of cycling um and and from literally from age 13 on i i just thought about i'm gonna race in europe i'm gonna race in europe and did the best i could through usa cycling um and that didn't quite happen so i dropped out i did a semester at university of northern colorado and dropped out and got a one-way ticket to belgium i was only really only had plans for the first month, but I, I was trying to figure out how am I going to stay longer than a month? I had an open-ended ticket. Okay. My parents knew that, that I wanted to figure out how to stay. So I, I left in February of 1990. And in the first month I was on this kind of exchange program and I was the only American that was finishing races. Mm. So you can't even think about the podium. You are 
it's a different sport. You, you know, as a 19 year old, you're just trying to get to the end of the race. Wow. And you have to remember back then, um, there was no U23. Right. It was, you were professional or amateur. Okay. But in the amateurs, they were ex-pro. So you're 19 years old, racing 80, 90, 100 miles against guys that did the Tour de France the year before. Wow. And that's what you're thrown into. There was, yeah. You went from junior to basically pro racing. Um, wow. So luckily, I was able to finish races. And so um, the club asked me to stay for the rest of the season. Like, yeah free housing. You can stay the rest of the year. We'd love to have you. I was like, Oh my God, found it. This is awesome. <laughs> Nailed this is what it. I was dreaming of. Yeah. So call mom and dad. You know, I called my mom once a month, you know, she just cried, you know, on the, I was at the payphone in the corner, yeah. you know, um, no internet, Stack you know, of quarters. none of that, of course. Yeah. So, or euros, back, well, it wasn't even euros, Belgian franc back yeah. then. Uh, um, so yeah, I, I, I was luckily enough that I think I didn't have the, ta- the, the fitness as much as the, the tactics. Mm. I could really fight in the wind, position myself well, um, and, you know, and kind of the tougher the race, the better it was. You know, yeah. I wasn't a climber, so racing in Holland and, and Belgium was, was great for me. Yeah, you're a and bigger then, guy um, for a cyclist, right? I mean, you're a tall guy. You're, what, 6'2"? Yeah, I'm almost 6'3", but certainly okay. there's, there's plenty of six two, six, three guys out there racing the Tour of France and kicking butt, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, I was probably chunkier than those guys, obviously. Um, but I, I raced her, uh, I was about hundred just under 170 pounds, 165 yeah. or so is what it's so, a big cyclist though. Yeah. So Holland and Belgium were great for me. And then, um, my third year, um, I ended up getting on a French amateur team and racing Perry Roubaix um, amateur, finished on the velodrome. And then I got a, what back then it, it's, it was called a stagiaire program. So after the world championships, teams could take on young talent without it affecting their, their official roster. They're okay. trying out new, new young talent. Is there like a salary so I, kind of thing out there that? You- there was no salary. You would just, get a free jersey and they would put you in some races and see what they thought of you so i was racing pro towards the end of 92 but i didn't have an official pro contract yet i was in a stagiaire uh, program with a swiss pro team and then i I finished some of the pro races so i got got a contract Mm. for, uh, for the next year went back and was based out of brussels and my first classic was Het Volk, which just happened, I don't know, a few weeks ago. It was Het Neusblad is what it's called now, but Het Volk. And that was 1993. And I found myself in the breakaway with Lance Armstrong, Marc Sargent, Johan Capio, Edwig van Hoedonk, some, you know, the big names back then. Yeah. And we were rotating. I'm in the breakaway and rotating. And I come by Lance. I'm like, hey, Lance, when's the feed zone? And he like had a double take. He's like, are you an American? <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, I'm an American. He's like, ah, you know, I think it's in 10 miles or whatever it is, you know? And then afterwards he was like, dude, who are you? Like, yeah. where have you, what's your story? You know? Um, so yeah, I just kind of was a, 
I don't know, a rogue kind That's of hilarious. guy that took off and was under the radar on a way over there, but never made it to the top, top ranks, never did the Tour of France, but it was just that next level yeah. below on, you know, Belgian pro teams. So go and then, uh, yeah. just real quick. So, to, and it, you can answer these at the end because I don't want to break your train of thought, but um, two things. One, when you went over to Belgium originally, was it at the invitation of this club or did you just kind of kick a door in and two, does that opportunity exist today or is it just completely different? Yeah, there was a program back then whereby you could pay, you know, a month at a time to stay at um, this director's house. Mm. And he created this team and kind of marketed through Via Velo News to, you know, there were, there were um, ads in the back of Vela News, like come to Belgium for a month and try racing. Mm. So I was like, mom, dad, I, I really want to go do this program. You know, can I do it for a month and see if, you know, in the back of my head, I'm going to stay. Um, right. So yeah, there's this program really kind of tailored for Americans to come dabble and Got it. Okay. try Belgian racing. So I don't know what it was, maybe, you know, 800 bucks or something a month. Yeah. There may have been, you know, but you were guaranteed a bed, meals, and and racing. Okay. So that's what I went over and did. And and that program needed um some guys that could finish races so they can continue to get invitations. Yeah. Oh, we're dropping out here a sec. Hold up. Um and uh oh, okay. that kind of helped the team. Sorry, you yeah. dropped off for just a second. So, you're, yeah, so you're luckily back I got the invite to. Yep. Um, so luckily I got the invite to to stay, and that helped the team um, keep the momentum and keep getting invitations for more races. And we could get higher quality races the better quality racers we had. So that was, um, yeah, luckily I, I kind of found that program. Um, I'm sure now it it it's somewhat easier i would imagine with social media and yeah. the web and i mean we didn't even yeah. have email back then really so it was you know now you know connecting with a french club inquiring hey do you have a spot for a foreigner you know back then there weren't a it, there weren't a lot of foreigners you know racing for the local clubs and it's kind of funny because Aussies and New Zealanders really kind of figured it out as well. That was kind of another um, remote country that that figured this out, and they would find clubs to race for mm. um, back then. And you know, it was easier in Belgium, I think, to get on a on a club than in France. There are more rules about foreigners on clubs in France, whereas in Belgium, they didn't have any restrictions on the number of foreigners you could have. So it was a natural place to go. The The beauty of Belgium back then was there was a race every single day of the week. Whoa. And you, you would get this weekly kind of uh, schedule and you would just start to circle like where you want to race. And oftentimes you would ride to the race, race, ride home. And I was getting to the point where I would ride to a race. The race was 100 miles and I would ride home, you know, and I'm getting in 120 plus miles, you know, those yeah. days, which helped a lot when I did turn pro because, you know, Paris, Brussels, um, 156 miles, 
even the U.S. Pro Championships, Philadelphia, that was 160 miles. Mm. You know, so Belgium really kind of, you know, helped um, kind of harden you up because you just did yeah. not have those type of distances and intensities um, typically in the states. Yeah, Gear told me to ask you. Uh, uh, he, he heard you met uh, Alexander Vinokurov one time. Is there a story behind that? <laughs> Well, several times. Uh, <laughs> the funniest thing is that the last time I met him was in Kona. Uh, you know, he raced. Okay. He won I didn't know that group. he did that. No, I didn't, I didn't realize he had done Kona. Yeah, he raced Kona. And I'm, at, I'm behind the finish line. I'm like, oh, my God, that's Vino. Crazy. Um, I guess probably what Gear is referring to is we were invited to the Astana training camp in Mallorca, and it was like a January and I, I would always train with the guys. I loved going over, getting them set up on training peaks, and then I would, you know, train with them. And uh, so that that was, you know, it was before all the dirty, nasty kind of Got stuff it. came out about Vino. You know, so it was kind of, you know, a, a, a big, uh, like this crazy Russian Kazakh yeah. guy, like just hard as nails. Like it was just like, oh my god, got to ride a Vino today. It's amazing the, the the from the stands Dagestan and like they are taking over MMA like that is a that is a hard lot mm. over there that is coming out of those uh, the stands in Russia like they are just dominating. Yeah, I I follow Nordic skiing um, kind of closely, and they just had the World Championships last week, and Bolshanov. I don't know his first name, mm. but Bolshanov. It's basically Bolshanov, the Russian, versus the Nor Norwegians. Mm. And in the 50K uh, classic, I think it was, it came down to Bolsh like one Russian versus five Norwegians. Wow. And in the entire world, you know, how, what's the population of Norway? But they can have five athletes at that level. Right. And it's crazy. Versus the population of Russia, and they can have one athlete at that level. And it was one versus five. And Several races yeah. came down to Bolshanov versus the Norwegians. So yeah, um, hard. And he obviously has the bad Russian uh, kind of stories. You know, he literally tackles guys. He hits guys with his pole and <laughs> gets suspended. And it's like the pure Russian story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well. It's funny because one of the um, one of the sort of the the goat in MMA. Um, He's a, a, a you know devout Muslim, like a really good man. That is like the 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 thing behind him is he's an amazing wrestler, amazing fighter, but he is just first and foremost like a great man. And his father died uh, during the whole COVID thing, and he promised his mom that he wouldn't fight without his father, and he retired twenty nine and zero, just retired. Um, and the whole world is like, dude, you wow. can't retire. And he's like, wow. I, I made a promise to my mom, I'm not breaking it. You know, it's just it's crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. it's, it's interesting. A He's a good story. ambassador to the sport for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to ask you? The oh, there's a uh, Anton was telling me a story about the tour of Guatemala where you guys got bamboozled. Uh, one, either you or Anton had a win in your back pocket and you got kind of taken off yeah. course. <laughs> what happened? Well, Anton's Guatemalan, but they think of him more as American yeah. dual citizenship. So he's a, he's American to them, and we had an American team, Team Seven Up. Uh, Chris Baldwin, Chris Fisher, you know, Anton, a few others. And, uh, Anton was off the front in a stage and he was going to win the stage solo. And 
because you is American, effectively, the lead motorcycle purposely took him off course. Wow. So we, we come to this exit ramp, and Anton had taken like the exit ramp up and over, and we went under the bridge. And Anton saw it, and he had like flipped a Yui and came back down the bridge and had to chase us to get back on. Wow. And they also have the journalists are in the race. They actually have the radio journalists, like commentators. They're commentating on the radio on motorcycles in the race. <laughs> so they come up to Anton as he's racing and they're like interviewing him. And he's like completely pissed and going yeah. off on the organizer and how horrible this race is and everything. And so that was, uh, yeah, a really yeah, surprise move. And it was just, I guess, kind of typical racing in central south america uh, they can do whatever they want so yeah <laughs> stolen but a good the hard amazing it's the largest sporting event back then in, in guatemala it's like their tour de france yeah it was 12 days and we had huge stages thousands of people at the finish line we had security guards who'd cross the finish line and be ushered into a car and make sure the security guard got your bike and not some other you know kid um yeah. And it was a, a crazy experience, yeah. As Anton remembered it, he gave you like, I think he reached out on like one day notice and you packed up your bike and just and yeah. headed down there. Yeah, I was not training. It was, <laughs> after, it was in October. I was totally done with the season. He called me. He's like, hey, could you fly here tomorrow? The race starts in two days, you know. And I was like, uh, can't. I'll call you back in five minutes. Let me ask my wife. <laughs> Man, you must so I owed my paella. wife a big favor after that. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> We'd have a shot of tequila each night to stay, to keep our stomachs healthy. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> going, going back to that, on the training peak side of things, have you noticed, and maybe you're not even privy to this data or you don't track it uh, like out at a, at a macro level, but I'm curious to see from a sickness level, like, you know, with lockdowns over the last year and nobody, you know, showing up to work sick. And then you're, you know, you're, you're basically dragging the flu through office buildings and things. Have you guys noticed a, a, um, a downturn in the number of sick days athletes are taking, or have you even tracking that? Mm. You know, no, we have not looked at the data. Yeah. Uh, anecdotally, I would agree with you. I, I have a friend that's a pediatrician and he's like the kids are so healthy now. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, they're they they when school was not in session and most schools aren't um still, you know, the number of actual flu cases and just colds and sinus issues, et cetera, has gone way down. At least I've heard that from a pediatrician, which is not the same uh population. But uh Personally, in our family, yeah, we've been healthier. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, obviously, if you're not going to be around other human beings, I, unfortunately, I think you know you're going to be healthier. Yeah, but mentally, maybe not as um, mentally health. For sure. Yeah, I mean, we we've managed to. We had actually gone remote at Athlinks about six months before all of this happened. We'd been experimenting and giving our engineers. Um, some goals to hit and then we started going more and more remote so like we would do a two-week sprint if you guys hit all your metrics kind of like the training stuff where we had three years of metrics built up 
So we understood what our velocity was. So we gave them some metrics to hit and, yeah. and our entire team was begging to go remote. And it's, especially in the summer and then the winter or maybe spring in Colorado, it's, you know, I'm all about health and work-life balance. So it's like, if, if you're sitting there in front of your keyboard, looking out the window at the mountain bike ride you want to go on, go, go do the mountain bike ride. You're going to be far more productive in the long term if you do that versus just acting like you're working, you know, waiting, waiting for some clock to turn five, which is all these arbitrary things. But I mean, we would be decimated every fall and winter, like the flu would come through and then people didn't feel like they had the power to not come in. And then you'd have somebody, you know, dying in the corner and you're like, get the hell out of here, please. You know? And then of course the next week, 10 people are sick now and it's like too late. Yeah, certainly you don't really deal with that too much, you know, with the remote, I think, you know, staff are overall kind of healthier being remote. Um, so I do remember those days where people are sick in the office and you're, should I ask them? Just, you just need to go home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I finally, I mean, just coincidentally, we finally got to a point where we were, we were just getting ravaged. Like it was like, you got, you have to leave. Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I've lost half my engineers for a week you know, get the hell out of here. So yeah, I mean, you know, what I know you guys, your sweet spot is all about, you know, you and I, um, so a little backstory is Athlinks, you guys almost bought Athlinks before Lifetime did. So like, that's kind of why I ended up in Colorado is my wife and I flew up here to talk to you and gear. and, And I think maybe Andy at the time was around, um, fell in love with the area, fell in love with you guys. We didn't quite make the business side work, but really, you know, and then I I don't know what, at least every single year, our groups got together, tried to figure out how to work together. And then like one of our roadmaps would just be too, too piled up with stuff. And we never got a chance to really work together. Um, But I do know from those conversations, your sweet spot is the athlete who is training for a race. So how has that affected the business model, you know, with races basically being canceled all around the world? Yeah, it's interesting. At the very beginning, you know, about a year ago, you know, going into April, May, um, we actually saw a huge uptick in training plans. Mm. Um, A lot of, you know, and it it was, there was a big, big uptick in that. Um, But then, you sort of saw this like drop off of, of athletes not knowing what to do. So you sort of saw that drop of, of not off a cliff, but certainly a softening of the, mm-hmm. of the athlete subscription. But then coach numbers really took off. You know, we had our best year ever in terms of our coach business. We have our mo- the highest number of coached athletes ever in our history, you know, the last numbers I saw for, for February, um, we have a coach match program and we're in best month we've ever had was February. We just wrapped up in terms of pairing athletes with coaches. So I think last year was soft. We, we were, you know, up year over year, you know, revenue wise, um, the coach business was very strong. I think a lot of coaches, um, that weren't already you know, using training peaks kind of came over to training peaks because they had to go remote now and they hadn't really made that jump prior to COVID. 
but Training Peaks helped them in a way survive um, COVID because they were able to provide services remotely and build up that aspect of their business. And now that we have a promise of, well, not a promise, but we have a hint of races coming back, right? Yeah. Um, this year and we're getting the vaccine and hopefully second half of the year, we do have, you know, more real races on the calendar. Um, we're seeing the surge again, you know, come back. So we, we certainly grew through COVID. It, we would have grown more. Um, there's a lot of pent up demand as we yeah. all know. Um, and I think races and services like Mathlinks and Training Peaks, you know, we'll see a big, a big surge, you know, coming um, this year and next as things start to open up. So yeah, overall we would have done better, but um, it was, it was really, I guess, proud to see the coach business grow through that. And we were able to help coaches kind of survive. Yeah, that's awesome. It makes me happy because I, you know, like the, the iconic brands and, and things that they represent and, you know, a strong paint training peaks is good for the world of endurance. So it's, it makes me happy to know you guys are weathering the storm. Yeah. Well. I'd like to I obviously forgot to mention, you know, the whole indoor, you know, cycling kind of yeah. craze, you know, with Zwift crazy. and everything else. We saw probably three times as many um, files uploaded to training peaks that were indoor workouts. So wow. a 300% increase in indoor training, yeah. uh, within our population. And that was a very strong trend that's certainly not going to go away. And that was a, a great thing to see. It's sort of like it, it, ex- it accelerated, you know, future trends, kind yeah. of compressed them into eight months, if you will. Um, so it was, it was great to see the tech kind of technology, you know, um, come to, um, come to life and and really in a, in a great way for, for athletes to kind of get through those tough times. It's amazing how the context changes between things like Zwift and virtual races, which one day seemed silly and superfluous and maybe just this sort of outlier type of thing. And then one day they become the thing. They, they become these visionary products that you can't live without. And, you know, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how the context changed overnight. Yeah. And a little off topic, but training peaks is part of Peaksware and under Peaksware umbrella, we have music brands and a strength and conditioning app called train heroic and the music app, smart music, it probably grew three times in the last year. Uh, we landed the LA school district because of COVID, you know, all the music programs had to go remote Oh yeah, and this app helps teachers just like training peaks helps coaches. This app, smart music helps teachers manage their class and, and the homework assignments and individualization of the homework, whether you're playing the violin, clarinet, oboe, whatever it might be. Um, so that business grew and, and train heroic grew even, even more as wow. gyms were closed personal trainers had to go remote. Yeah. Um, so that train heroic app really grew and, and, and also with teams, you know, college, um, pro teams, you know, we kind of gained a lot more traction there as strength coaches had to go more remote and, and monitoring the strength and conditioning programs of, of their, awesome. their athletes. That is awesome. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. All those, um, all those acquisitions that you guys had done over the years and, and, uh, 
you know, they're tough things. And then all of a sudden they start to pay big dividends. That's awesome. That's great to hear. That's cool. Yeah. It's again, it's kind of, it's almost as if five or six years worth of future trends in the marketplace were crammed into yeah. six months. It was amazing, you know, and, um, zoom and everything else, people just had to figure it out. And now the world's you know, adopted it and it's going to change things forever. Yeah. It's, I, I've been watching the world of like Grinduro and, and, um, Enduro style racing and things. And the, the, I, on one of the episodes early on was Dave Pryor from Unpaved Big Gravel Race in Pennsylvania. And they adopted the Grinduro style where in order to not overfill the aid stations, what they did was they just had three timed segments on a 126 mile course. So the majority of the race was just people kind of, you know, casually riding and then they were fined to wait outside an aid station for the next, you know, the groups to go through. And then the the lead, the the gal who ended up winning on the female side, she reached out to the other two expected sort of podium finishers and asked them, hey, do you want to race together? And so they had right. the three gals going off together and then they would be basically shoulder to shoulder racing these three timed segments. And I thought about like the idea of applying that to other sports like running, you know, so like, you know, something like the New York City Marathon, where yes, you have your elites who want to go pedal to the metal, go sub three or whatever it is. But then there's a lot of other people where you could start to think about how do we spread out the race? Maybe we inject some culinary, you know, types of things in there where you're experiencing the five burrows while you're racing. And it's a six hour finish instead of a three hour but you're experiencing more of the race. You're, you know, because again, like I'm, I'm out on the training or the trails here. And I would say 80% of the people that I pass are still wearing a mask outside on a training run or ride. And I just think to myself, like, that's not a person that's jumping into a normal race anytime soon. I could be wrong, but I think that that's kind of the way that the mentality is going to go. No, that's a great, way to get people into racing and there's so many new endurance athletes that came to yeah. running cycling the trails are packed the the trail heads are uh, don't have enough parking yeah so there's so many new athletes um and a certain percentage of them will dabble and start to discover racing but if there's easier ways to bring them into the competitive realm without it feeling overly competitive and yeah. this unique aspect you know these time segments and you know and i've seen these you know the virtual races where you actually do the course outside yeah you have 10 days to go do it right um you know and a race here in lions the old man winter you know adopted that yeah i think you have like 10 days to complete the course and upload it um so that's yeah there's really cool innovative new formats that are coming out of this as well that, that will survive and be really cool and unique. Yeah, I'm excited. I think there's some really interesting, really interesting things that, you know, as I've gotten older and slower, albeit, but like I have less of a desire to jump into every race I can and more to like find three or four or two or three like epic races a year and go travel and work a vacation in around it and experience a new place and all that stuff so um and i think absolutely we've we saw a lot of athletes you know uh make it experiential yeah i mean myself personally i've always wanted to do a four-day you know gravel 
ride event, but go from Boulder to Winter Park to Breckenridge and back. Yeah. And I did that, you know, I, I did that this last summer and maybe with the racing mentality, I wouldn't have done it, but now I did it and I want to do more of them. It's cool. Um, yeah. When yeah. I was, so people are doing these challenges. Yeah. I think there's a little lag. When I was re- researching that power of four race, you just did one of the, um, one of the rules was if you opt not to finish, you must check in with course marshal or we will be out looking for you. Like that gives you a good indication of that sounds like a good race to do like somewhere where they're going to have to go find you. That's the kind of race I want to do, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a story in itself with my, with my race last week, my, my teammate, unfortunately missed a turn. Mm. He went way off course. I was waiting in transition for him. I waited 20 minutes. I kept asking every group that came through if they've seen him. No one saw him. Oh, wow. But there was no radio. There was no patrol in that transition. So I left after waiting 20 minutes until I found a ski patrol with the radio that radioed back up the mountain. And they sent out literally like a search party no to kidding. look for him. And I waited 20 more minutes at that point. Because I was like, if, if my buddy's like broken his leg, I don't need to finish this race. Right. You know, I should be with him in ER or something. Um, but then I got word that he had gone off course. He had already dropped out. So then I continued on just because okay. I had this amazing fitness. And I, you know, made it to the finish line in under seven hours. Happy with that. But officially we were DQ'd. DQ, we're yeah. not on the finish list. Um, but yeah, team event and sort of have to navigate the course. <laughs> yeah. Well, it happens. But that's kind of mm-hmm. fun, you know. I mean, that's the I've been I've been starting to um, follow this world of FKTs based on a couple of guests that yeah. I've had on Jason Hardrath. And, um, um, I, I always do this and I, people's names escape my mind. So she's going to kill me. His girlfriend who's the queen of FKTs. It'll come to me in a moment, but they were both on the podcast in a couple of episodes and it's just a fascinating world. Like something that probably I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, um, been interested in, but now just this idea that, you know, with all the tools that are available to us, you can just go out and just decide one day, how hey, I want to go do some epic, you know, 60 mile effort that, uh, you know, record my time and race against other people and, you know, kind of take that Strava King of the Mountain type of things, like, you know, really at a hot, much, much higher level. Yeah. You know, you saw the Eversting kind of stuff happening yeah. mainly on the bike, but I saw skiers doing it as well i saw someone did it this week you know and she did it in 22 hours you know of skinning up a a resort in utah um i'm not going to do that Uh, (laughs) the thing that with fkt's those i'm never going to be anywhere near the fkt so we need these age grouped fkt's kind of be published as well it's the f part that is the (laughs) i'll be uh i can do like the uh AKTs, like the also known times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley Winchester was her name. That is her name. God, I knew it. Would well, and, and I think it's great to train for that. Yeah. But it should not be all your training. Some right. of the, you know, I, you know, we go back to that periodization, 80, 20, et cetera. If, if all you're doing is chasing KOMs four days a week, uh, that's not the, yeah, you know, and and yet, and yet you want to get faster. That it's they're not. That's not going to happen. You know, well, it's you're cra- plateau. I mean, Boom. Yeah, and and again, that kind of speaks to working with a coach and working, you know, scientifically. Because why wouldn't it work, right? I running, you you have to run faster to run faster, you know. And why wouldn't you know? And and so like yeah. it's so counterintuitive to all of that because as kids, that's what we do. 
go to the gym, we max our bench, we sprint, we, you know, we do everything at full bore, not realizing that really what we're doing is just, you know, kind of driving ourselves uh, into the ground. Yeah. I, I always say, you know, rest days and training peaks are just as or more important than the hard days, you know, and it's really looking at training holistically Yeah, and the, the recovery days are, that's where you make your gains. Yeah. You know, you, if you ignore too many of those, um, recovery as well as just non high intensity type days, like we were talking about earlier, um, yeah. that's really how you're going to maximize your overall fitness and performance, um, long-term. Yeah. Got it. It's easy well, to plateau. It is. Yeah. I'm, I've been, I've been in a 15 year plateau, so I'm, I'm nailing it. Um, all right. We'll just so, do a new sport and you'll get a new PR, uh, every day, every day. Well, it's funny because one of the, re- I knew this would happen too. I've been, I like all of these things keep sort of piling up, uh, in terms of talking to people who use coaching and, and I keep like, okay, I'm going to get, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I knew having you on would, would just like push me over the edge to, get back into using training peaks, get back to getting a coach and a training plan. Cause I'm again, I'm doing silver rush in July. Like I'm nowhere near yeah. ready. I'm pounded myself into well, the ground. And so I need something more scientific to get there. And sometimes you can kind of ease into it. It's nice to have that consultant. Yeah. Um, if you, if, if, you know, sometimes I can understand the commitment to, I have to do every single workout, nail it every single day that my coach, but like, be honest with the coach. Listen, I, I need some advice. What are the key workouts every week that I should target? What, you know, I like having those conversations where it's, you know, what are the two key workouts I should yeah. nail this week? You know, what are the three main objectives this week? Um, you know, and you can kind of jigger, jigger it around from there, but having that third party to give you yeah. that kind of um, roadmap and things to think about each week. If, you know, nailing every single day's workout to the exact yeah. second is overwhelming for you. Yeah. You know, you, there are ways to kind of ease into that um, and get the benefits of coaches. Yeah. Well, and I love to understand things. I'm not really like a copy paste kind of guy. I really want to understand the why behind why certain, you know, what what is this workout versus this workout giving me? What happens when I do skip this? Is this, how is this going to affect me? And so having a coach be able to kind of explain those things and um, I'm kind of a loner when it comes to that. Like, I don't like, I, I appreciate the accountability, but I don't really like being beholden to this type of thing. I, I'm, I'm not good in kind of group settings where it's like, okay, I have to show up at 8 AM or I'm going to piss 10 people off kind of thing. Yeah. So, I'm kind of, I'm definitely the same way. I, I'm more, I, I love the progression. Mm-hmm. You know, can I progress? Can I have this workout progress over time? Yeah, and I'm kind of hitting those. They're not. They're not just like arbitrary. It's like, okay, I did this. Yeah. Now, now, you know, it should logically progress like this. You know, can I do that? Oh well, I need to recover to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um. So, uh, again, back to my example of training with my teammate. I I kind of keep that at bay, um, because I just get in the wrong zone, um. So, but I am missing group rides. I am yeah. missing some of those group uh, training sessions. Absolutely, yeah. where it just doesn't matter. Just go, go have fun, and yeah, you know, have a great, great time. Yeah, I think I did one group ride here in Boulder, and it was uh, you know chemo and Ted Kennedy, and and uh, I was riding. I was climbing. I think left hand or something. And Ted was asking me all these questions, and I I had to like turn to him and say. 
I, I can't talk. <laughs> like he was, he was just so conversational and I was just redlining. So I was like, sorry, Ted, but I, I can't talk to you right now. I'll meet you. Yeah. That, that was the last group ride I did. I was in the wrong group for that day for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. I want to be conscious of time. You want to answer? We do a little 10 question dash. Let the uh, listeners get Ooh. to know you a little bit. Very okay. easy. All right. Here we go. All cool. right. Question number one, uh, gear. What is your gear looking like? What brands do you prefer out on course? Oh man. Uh, gear. We're going into brands. Uh, I'm paid by nobody. Um, <laughs> Canyon bike. Oh, me too. Uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, bike of the day so canyon road um okay. cervello aspero gravel scott um 29er mountain bike nice other uh, i like the martin hydrogels um they go down real easy they're mm. not overly sweet they're just like a jelly that just kind of goes down and they've, huh. they've been really good for me and martin and tailwind uh drink yeah. Um, mix. They're out of Durango. I like I like Tailwind. So that's been my kind of go to nutrition. Nice, cool. Uh, what is your next race? What do you got lined up? I always have a race in the calendar. Uh, my next race is Steamboat. No, actually, it'd be Firecracker Fifty. Okay, July Fourth, Breckenridge. I always okay. do that. Um, and then Steamboat would be after that. Gravel hundred miler and Breck Epic three day. And I'm doing that kind of back to back same week it's boom 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 i think yeah. i think sun, sunday is steamboat and then i have two days off and then breck epic nice like. is breck up at the week leading into leadville or is it after leadville do you, do you know it's like it's after you have like leadville steamboat then breck epic okay got it because people are doing leadville steamboat together yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah yeah what is it this the steamville i think they're I calling forget. it or lead, steam, lead, steam. Lead yeah. boat, lead I think boat. it's Steamville lead or something. Boat. Yeah, lead, yeah, something like that. <laughs> but right. they could do Epic. They could do Breck Epic after that. Yeah, Breck Epic has been on my on my radar for a long time. Um, Melly did that a lot and uh, loved it. And and so yeah, I, I mean, I'm a I, I love running Leadville. Riding Leadville to me is like a, it's just sadomasochistic. Like it's it's a. Uh, it's not my it's not my style of race. It's a great brand, and I love this town yeah. of Leadville. And again, the runs are great, but the the ride is a little out of my league. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of times I choose races based on the course. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Breck Epic is such a beautiful. I mean, it's a very different style. Like Leadville is kind of like riding your bike on the moon in, in a lot of ways. Very steep moon. Um, you got a favorite sports book or movie, something that you kind of go to for inspiration or you love throwing on once a year? A breaking away. I mean, I was oh, born in Indiana. Yeah. So, um, and then a, a funny one is American Flyers. Oh. My mom and I are actually in the movie on the Morgul Bismarck. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, next time I watch yeah. it, I love both of those movies. Very good. Cool. What's your, what's your favorite race you've ever done? Uh, I, I guess uh, Philadelphia U.S. Pro Ch U.S. Pro Championship, just huge crowds. Philadelphia racing through downtown. Yeah, such a great, great, great race. Um, you know, yeah, love, love, love that. And Grand Prix San Francisco only lasted a few years, but going up those steep roads in San Francisco, that, that, I just get amazing. 
of flashbacks to racing in San Francisco when we had that race. Nice. You should have said Rocky for your movie and then um, Philadelphia for your for your favorite race. What's your bucket list <laughs> race? What's something you haven't done that you want to, you, you definitely want to do? Well, actually this year I've never done Steamboat or Epic. Okay. Very so good. You got those a couple. are kind of my buckets right now. Are you a music guy when you're training? No. No? I can't do headphones. Yeah, okay. All right, we had, what's your what's your home stretch song or band on your playlist? But if you're not listening, then we'll we'll give you a little cowbell for those. Um, it would be Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, me too. Wait, on the bike or on everything? When you do listen? To get amped up. Yeah. I can't to get amped do, up before the competition. I can do I can do literally like Ukrainian death metal when I run. I can't, on the bike I need mellow or I get my, like my heart rate spikes. When I have done headphones it's been reggae. That's good. Very good. Awesome. What's a, do you have any pre-race rituals or superstitions? Uh, I have to have everything laid out like the night before, That's number funny. pinned on um pre-race ritual i'm sure i have them but uh it, yeah they're so ingrained they're at this point you've been doing this a long time <laughs> <laughs> you don't even realize you're doing them yeah uh living or dead who would you most like to share a long run or ride with or ski uh muhammad ali oh, that's a good one but i don't know how long he, he can go for he, he used to run miles backward. He would run like five miles backward oh. as part of his training. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a big guy for a heavyweight. I think he was like, I think he walked around under 200 pounds. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can see that. He could probably run with you a little bit. <laughs> you know? Yep. All right, Dirk. What is, uh, last question is, uh, got to think long and hard about this one. What is the secret, Dirk? the secret is consistency oh my god you know what's funny so one you sounded exactly like anton when you said that and i think i'd have to go back and check my notes i think he gave the exact same answer in and sounded identically no way yeah you guys speak very similar <laughs> it's pretty funny into that <laughs> that's good yeah consistency yeah, wow. it doesn't it doesn't have to be uh it doesn't have to be that deep. That's good. Well, awesome, man. It's great to hear that Training Peaks is still kicking ass. Great to hear that you're <laughs> kicking ass at 50. Um, I'm still gonna come crash your place in Breckenridge one day. Um, All right, yeah. Get get my dad on. He's kicking ass at 70, 70, yeah. Some six years old. Cool. All right, I will. I'll He's, reach out. Uh, he rides and trains every single day in an FTP test last week. Um, he is honed in. People have no idea how old he is. Wow. Is he still in Scottsdale? Cool. Sedona. Sedona. Okay. Moved up north there. Well, good. Yeah, I'll definitely reach out. That'd be I'd love to have him on again. Like he man, I used to I I I could recite pages of his book. I followed that thing to the letter for sure. Mm -hmm. And it got me through my first couple of seasons there. So he was my he was the coach in the back of my head, as I'm sure millions of triathletes out there for, for sure. Yeah, he kind of laid, created the seeds that I kind of like picked up and ran with. So certainly he's awesome. the start of it all for me. 
That's awesome. Any words of wisdom or anything else you want to plug? Where can people find you out there on uh, Instagram or anywhere else? I really just do Instagram. Um, so just Instagram uh, at Dirk, Dirk Friel. And uh, yeah, or just you can email me if you have questions, Dirk at trainingpeaks.com. Perfect. Anything. Awesome. And check out Training Peaks if you haven't yeah, used thanks. it before. It's thanks, such yeah, it's such a great product. And and um, again, it, what I love about it is you can kind of take it to, you can sort of wet your beak or take it to the extremes as far as like how involved you want a coach to be. Or you just want to download a training plan and, and kind of track your own stuff. Um, been great friends with the company. Yep. And you guys actually inherited some of our misfortune in, in uh, Dave Demmer. We, uh, we had a little round of layoffs in the beginning of COVID and you picked up a great one there, oh, yeah. so... Yeah, 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 he's over yeah, there. Yeah, awesome. Very cool. Yeah, good guy. Yeah, we're and Great we're guy. hiring, so check, check out our careers page. We're definitely hiring. Boom, there you go. That's awesome. Well, Dirk, thank you awesome. so much, thank man. You. I appreciate you spending some time with us today and uh, imparting some knowledge. So uh, it's great talking to you. Great seeing you again. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Troy. All right, man. We'll see you. Well, that is the show, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. More people racing more often, having more fun in the process is our mission at Athlinks. Thanks again to Dirk Friel for sitting down and having a great old chat with us. We do a special post for each episode on Instagram, so look for the post for episode 36 with a picture of Dirk. If you have any comments or questions, we are at Athlinks, or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. The best way to support this podcast is to click subscribe on iTunes or follow on Spotify to be notified of new shows. Share it far and wide with anyone you think would enjoy it. Help spread the word and please do take a second to give us a rating and a quick review on iTunes. And until next time, happy racing, everybody.